Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will uh, continue my look at Harry Peter Stowe's uh, novels. Uh, and right now we're looking at Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this is the third of five parts of that review I'll be giving of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, it'll be covering chapters 16 through um, 22. So not that many chapters, uh, relatively long chapters, actually. Um, and dealing mostly with the St. Clair family and, and, and Tom. We get a little bit about uh, Eliza and her experiences, but, but not too much. Mostly we're dealing with uh, the St. Clair families and Tom and his interactions with that family. Um, a little bit with stuff back home in Kentucky, too. So this probably won't be, uh, I do have some things to say about this, but this probably won't be a super long episode. I, um, this is just kind of getting us uh, to the climax, it seems, to the, to the, you know, the, the, where the novels are going to go. It's kind of getting us from here to there, introducing a few new characters, uh, especially Ophelia, who we already sort of met, but we learned more about her, and um, Topsy, and, and that's going to be the focus of what I have to say, I think, in this, this episode. Um, now, some news. I've um, I got my first major shipment of Library of America books uh, coming um, shortly. It may take a few months to get here from Taiwan. Um, I, I ordered uh, about 35 or so of them. So that's kind of opening us up to new opportunities in this podcast going forward. I like my initial plan of, of sticking with, um, of doing Stowe, then doing uh, Du Bois, Richard Wright, and then doing some 19th to 20th century women writers. That's kind of still there, but I, I may mix it up a little bit if I find some cool stuff. And there's a whole lot of cool stuff coming um, shortly. Just to share with you some of some of what uh, I've ordered, um, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, some John Dos Passos, all the Elmore Leonard uh, volumes. I think there's three of them now. Uh, Lauren Easley, uh, who's a kind of a nature writer, a science writer. I don't know much about him. Um, so the Women Crime Writers, which is two volumes. Uh, Frederick Law Olm Olmsted, which is more nature writing. Um, James Baldwin, which I always thought I had for a long time. I thought I had those volumes hidden away, but when I did my kind of inventory, I didn't have those. So the three volumes of James Baldwin's work, uh, the Dashiell Hammett, which is I think two or three volumes, um, the American musicals. Um, I think they've published three. I, I purchased two of them. The ones, the broad American musicals. There's one on um, uh, one particular writer. Um, that's, that's a separate volume. Um, some Wendell Berry. I actually have the Wendell Berry uh, nature writing already, but this is his novels. Um, the other two volumes of science fiction, uh, the 60s science fiction novels. We, we, I have the 50s ones, and then there's two volumes from the 60s. Um, Virgil Thompson on music writing. Uh, Melville's poems, which I need to get back to. Um, the Reconstruction volume, which is kind of like the sequel to the Civil War series. There was four volumes on the Civil War, but then there's this Reconstruction volume, which kind of is the same kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, those are the things I've ordered. So it's, it's a good 10% of the entire Library of America I, I'm expanding my collection by. I think they're up to like 360 volumes, not including the poets. 
So I'm pretty excited about that. And I think I, I, I'm in a financial state now where I can probably do that every year, which will mean probably in five or six years. I'll be pretty close to having the entire collection um, in hand. Um, I, I might even, if I, if I use the used book market this summer, I might be able to like speed that process along. So when I go to America this summer, I can go to Amazon and buy a bunch of used ones. I'm limited by how much I can actually physically transport back uh, unless I want to spend a bunch of money shipping, which is always an option too. But but my goal in the next four or five years is, is to complete the Library of America collection. And then um, and then just at that point, it's just sustaining buying the new books they, they print each year. So exciting. Uh, exciting news. But let's uh, enough about that, enough about my excitement about that. We can uh, jump into uh, the middle sections of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So the book was really published in two volumes. I don't you know, if you've picked up old versions of these books, the, the typeface, there's not many words per page. It's just how they printed books in those days compared to today. So, you know, these a book like this would be like 700 pages. 800 pages, but split between two, two volumes, two thick volumes. Um, and that hits us at about 250 in this particular version of it, which is right in the middle of this, this section. But, um, yeah, let's, let's find where we're at. When I say chapter 16, find my notes on that. Um, oh, yeah, so... We're, we're really talking about Ophelia and Marie St. Clair, that St. Clair family. Um, that's how we start out. And actually, a lot of the section is about that. And we get different characterizations. We have Maria, who is just um, a pretty selfish, horrible woman, mistreats her slaves, sees the slaves as less than human, as, as do all of the white characters here, pretty much. Uh, some are more sympathetic than others. Um, but that's what makes Ophelia so interesting. I still think Ophelia is in some ways a conduit for her to talk about Catherine Beecher. Her sister, uh, maybe not in her attitudes about slavery. I'm, not sh I'm pretty sure Catherine Beecher would have been as anti-slavery as the rest of the family. But, um, but the way she talks about managing households, it's, it's, it's really kind of fascinating stuff. But largely here in this chapter we have um, Maria talking with Ophelia and Ophelia just sort of sits there and nods. If you ever had a conversation at a bar or something with someone who doesn't share any of your values, but you don't want to like fight. So you just sort of nod along. That's sort of what Ophelia is doing here. Um, and, and Marie is just complaining about the slaves. That's her big thing. She thinks the slaves are just kind of lazy and only think about themselves. And, of course, it's really ironic because her whole life is propped up by a system that uses other people, exploits other people, and sees them, you know, totally denies any of their own agency. She is kind of giving them agency, in a sense, in her complaints. She's saying these slaves do actually are kind of willful and selfish, which is what you, which all, all people are to some degree, right? So she's in, in, inadvertently kind of giving them some humanity. But for her, it's just, just bad things, right? She can't see any good in them. And Ophelia just sort of nods along um, about that. So we don't really get Ophelia's views about slavery very explicitly in this, this section, but we will later on. 
Um, and I've also, we have a lot here about Ava um, and her relationship with, with Tom, which is going to be key, and then Ava's relationship with Topsy, who is another slave that enters the family, is going to be pretty important um, as well. Um, so we got some different contrasts here, especially Ophelia and Marie, in that Ophelia is much more straight-laced and serious and reflective, it seems, and not very open about her opinions on slavery, especially not in the presence of Marie. And we have Ava, who potentially can grow out of this system. I, I think there's hope in Ava of being someone, at least in Stowe's mind, who won't grow up just to become another slaveholder and just inherit the property and, and become like Marie, but can become someone who would, would uh, you know, be on the side of the abolitionists or be for ending slavery. So this is dangerous, of course. It's always dangerous for any older people my age or older to have too much hope in the younger generation because that kind of takes the burden off of us to act. Um, it's an old... Um, it kind of becomes an excuse. It's like, oh, the, the millennials, they're the ones who are going to fix climate change. You know, it's too late for me. It's like Darth Vader or something, right? Like, it's too late for me. But the young ones can save the day. Uh, and now it's Zoomers get all this burden. It's just like rolling the shit downhill on to the younger generations. And it's not fair. And it's not even correct. It's obviously anyone of any age can think correctly and do proper action and change the world. Um, we can hope, but you do have that here with the character of Ava, I think. Um, I'm not sure where Ava goes. We'll see. Uh, maybe she's also ultimately um, uh, fallen in some ways. Who knows? Um, so the next chapter we have is, I think this is the only chapter we'll look at in this episode dealing with George and Eliza's adventures. Um, trying to earn their freedom. This is a kind of an action set piece. So it's kind of interesting that we get like the, like the political uh, reflections about like especially white characters through mostly the St. Clairs now. I, I thought it would be the Shelbys. I thought that was going to be the tension. But the Shelbys are kind of pushed back into the back of the story. We still have George there. And, and what happens to him is, is there seems to be, set, she seems to be setting up something for George. The young George, not uh, not this George, not not uh, Eliza's husband George. But we've kind of shifted these dilemmas about how white should act in amid slavery and in contesting slavery or challenging it. Uh, we find shifted from the Shelbys to the St. Clairs. Um, but it seems that the Eliza and George story is what's giving us our our kind of action set pieces. Uh, we had the river, the runaway, the flight from, what's his name, Haley, uh, by Eliza. And now we have George's uh, action set piece. And basically, it's they're planning to go to Canada. They're talking to the Quakers. They're living with the Quakers who are protecting them and helping them figure out how to get to Canada. And we got uh, good anti-slavery Quakers here. I mean, these are presented pretty much as, as good characters. But, of course, they're being pursued by, if we remember back uh, to the slave catcher scene where, you know, there was the ad for George and, and, uh, and Haley, like, recruited the slave catchers. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll just take them if you don't want to pay us what we want. Remember that scene? 
um, well, these people are still out there looking for um, George and Eliza, especially George, because uh, George had the, the wanted poster. I think it was $400 dead or alive, which is, seems a lot of money to, to pay for a dead slave. Um, but, um, but yeah, his name's like Tom or something. And th these are the really bad slave, slave catchers, the slave drivers look, you know, who make their money just rounding up runaway slaves, which are some of the worst people on the planet, right? <laughs> Obviously. Um, and they're after them, and, and they come to the town. They track them down at this Quaker uh, village, and then um, the Quakers and George and Eliza and the son and others uh, have to kind of run away and hide. They eventually get attacked, and here's where we get the shootout scene where George stands up and basically says, like, I'd rather be dead than re-enslaved. And he kind of stands them down, shoots back at them. Um, and um, George wounds one of them, like shoots one of them with, the, with, his, with his gun. And they, allow, and they, they, they basically um, force them to back down. But the wounded one is, uh, yeah, it's Tom, right? The wounded one is taken in by the Quakers who cares for them. And, and so we got this, their humanity being reinforced here in their actions towards this wounded man who they don't want to let, let just die, even though obviously that's what they would have done to George or Eliza if, if that battle had turned out differently. So this is an important scene both for showing um, the greater humanity of the runaway slaves and, the, and now free. That's an important thing is George talks about himself as a free man from this point. And we saw that in the slave narratives a lot is that there's a lot of, you know, this idea of when you become free. There's the legal, con there's a legal issue of like winning it in a court or purchasing it, but more important for the runaway slaves themselves is that moment when they can say in their heart they're free, and that's usually the moment when they run away. But for Douglas, it was the moment he beat up coffee, the 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 overseer. Um. So there's that. That's a really important scene for George's character. Um, and I don't think, f sadly, we don't see much of George uh, until, at least in this part of the book. Hopefully we see more of him later on because he's, I definitely want to see what happens to, to George. Um, so then we flip back to the St. Clairs. Like I said, we spend most of our time in this section of the book with the St. Clairs. And we see Tom as a... Um, you know, doing his work. He's basically a domestic slave working, uh, helping with, the, you know, the economics of the house. And he is, you know, he's doing like bookkeeping and stuff. The problem is, is Augustine St. Clair, the, 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 the patriarch of this family, is a drunkard and a gambler and all that. And Tom sees this as a problem. He, of course, looks at the, like the receipts and sees that uh, he's going to bankrupt the family if he keeps doing this. And so he actually, instead of just saying, that, that might be a good thing for me. Fuck these guys. You know, they bought me. I don't have sympathy for them. No, he has this kind of moral duty to save this man's soul. And so he tries to, like, become a antebellum-style reformer, using moral persuasion to convince him to change his behavior. He does promise to do that. Okay? Um, but... Here's where the story I think it's really interesting is we get a whole scene with uh, uh, with Ophelia with the cook Dinah, 
Um, and I said before, I really do think Ophelia is, is in some ways a reflection of Catherine Beecher. Um, and if, you know, just to repeat it, Catherine Beecher in, I think it's the 1840s, wrote what was basically the first American homemaker's guide. And it was one of the most popular best-selling books of the time. And it had many different editions, and it had a supplement. That was as long as the original almost. Um, it's called Treatise on Domestic Economy. And there's a lot there about democracy. There's a lot there about women's place in democracy. There's a lot of theory behind the book. Um, and basically the theory is women have a separate sphere of the home, but that is their sphere, and they can control it. And, and, then, and that makes them somewhat, somewhat the equals of men if they can control that. Um, sphere entirely. In fact, it's a more important sphere in some ways. And how do you do this? How do you control this space? Um, well, it's through science. It's through uh, knowledge. It's through learning. It's through education. It's through, uh, you know, mastery of certain skills and techniques. So she, chapter by chapter in this book, and I, I have glanced at it. I, haven't, I don't want to say I read the whole thing because mostly it's specific advice that you would it would be a reference book if you were a homemaker you know the kid has a fever what do you do you turn to that chapter or i, I want to i need to um can some fruit for the winter or how do i do that you, you turn to those pages so it's a lot of that stuff but it is very systematic like how you set a table uh how you warm plates i, I opened up randomly one book and she's talking about how in the winter you have to warm the plates by the fire before you set the table um you know, it's like these little details that she thinks allow you to put control of the domestic sphere. And it gives women total control over this crucial space. And you, you somehow you excise men from it if you do that. Like men have their sphere and women are excised from that, from politics, from the economy, from voting, from all those things. But women can control this moral sphere, the, the home. It's really interesting, though, that Catherine Beecher never married. So the question is, how much of this did she actually do herself? Or, you know, probably not as much as an actual married woman. But it's actually kind of a fascinating book. Uh, why I'm dwelling on this is like Ophelia is trying to do that with Dinah. So Ophelia is trying to teach Dinah to impose order. There's a scene where Ophelia asks, like, what's in that drawer? And, and Dinah's like, oh, this and that, whatever. Like, you know, whatever I need is there. And, and then Ophelia says, no, 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 this has to be like the drawer for spoons. This has to be the drawer for thongs. <laughs> tongs. This has to be the drawer for spatulas. Like everything has to have a place. Um, everything on the Dutch uh, or the Welsh dresser, sorry, the Welsh dresser has to be in the right place, right, uh, for order. Um, it's, it's kind of a northern value, I think. I think Catherine Beecher in that book was mostly sold in the north. And, and I think part of the reason for that is because households in the south, especially middle class households or rich people's households, were run by um, slaves. So they had their own like logic and reason for doing things that was probably inherited from that tradition of enslaved workers in the south. Northern women didn't have that same kind of luxury, so they had to kind of control that. Um, domestic space, but Ophelia here is, is, is being like the Catherine Beecher here trying to say, this is how you do it properly. It's a, it's a fascinating scene, and, and it's one you might overlook, but I, I think it has an important role in just like the culture of 19th century reform. Um, so we have, we're, we're introduced to other slaves here in this chapter too, like Prue, who's a neighboring slave, and she's um, 
she's like an alcoholic. She's really in a bad time because she's being so horribly mistreated. She's basically a breeding machine for her master. All our kids have been sold away. Um, and and like she, she, she got sold to another master and she had a kid there. And, it, and I think that kid was taken away too. It's really a horrible, it's a really a miserable story. Prue, you can kind of forgive her for drinking. Just because her life really is so messed up. She can't even feed her baby. It's 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 rough, um, and oh no! I think the baby died right because she couldn't feed them feed, feed it milk, and the masters didn't want to buy like pay for a network wet nurse or something. So the kid just died. It's really really horrible. And she's telling the story to Tom, and so we have like two drunkards in this chapter, right? One drunkard from the upper class. St. Clair, who is doing it purely out of uh, hedonist desires, right? And we have Prue, who's a drunk because of the misery of her life, right? And Tom's intervening with both and trying to help both. Um, And I think that's just trying to say the goodness of Tom, ultimately. But I think there's like another level of analysis we can get here about like why people become all clogs, why people drink, why people, you know, how people like approach each day, you know, and how they get through their day and how they find meaning in their life. And if you can't, because everything's been stripped from you, you know, it's not surprising people turn to, to drugs and alcohol. But that's like morally different level than when someone who's like, everything handed to them, literally has slaves doing his work for him you know, can't manage those, those things. I don't know. For, for me, it's a, it's, it's on a different, like, moral, philosophical level, I guess. So in the next chapter, chapter 19, it's, it's literally the break between volume one and volume two of the original publication. And chapter 18, as I called, Miss Ophelia's Experiences. And then chapter 19, which is a whole new volume of the book, like you'd have to actually take it off your shelf and pull the new volume off. It's called Miss Ophelia's Experiences and Opinions Continued. So the chapter that bridges the two volumes is essentially one big fat chapter, um, which I don't know. There's not much to say about that. I just think it's kind of an interesting design choice or, or publication choice. But this chapter is when um, Ophelia hears about Prue. Right? Remember that drunk slave we met in the previous chapter? that she's been basically murdered by her master, uh, whipped and punished uh, to death. Um, and Miss Ophelia now finally says her piece about slavery. And, and this is important because Ophelia is a very, very complex character, probably the most complex character in the book so far, uh, with the exception of maybe Tom. But that's often because we, we're, we're struggled with like how Tom is remembered and how, how the term Uncle Tom is used, right? And that, that that we, if we come into this book with that idea of what Tom is, we're, we, we come out of it more conflicted. But if we ignore that and try to just understand Tom as Stowe understands him, I think he's fairly easy to understand. That's not the case with Ophelia. Ophelia is definitely a bit all over the map. Um, but that's like a, a credit, I think, to Stowe and to her, her characterization of, of the whites in this book. But Ophelia is horrified by what happened to Prue. And she 
attacks Augustine. She attacks her whole family for supporting slavery. And she basically makes, you know, not quite an abolitionist argument, but certainly an anti-slavery argument here. Um, now, the problem is, what do you do about it? She doesn't own the slave. She doesn't own the household. She doesn't have financial decision-making choice. She is essentially just a, a helper in the family. So there's a limit to what she can do. But she has her say, it's the same way Mrs. Shelby had her say, right? Um, and she's quite eloquent here. She, this is maybe Stowe breaking the fifth wall a little bit. Um, but I, but I think she's actually trying to show that these opinions exist, but they're not existed. They don't exist in the, the hearts and the minds of people who can actually change things. Or, as we'll see in the next chapter, I think that there's a limit. It's one thing to say this; it's another thing to actually do it and complete it. Because when she does have power, right, things change. Um, so that's what makes her really super complex. But I think at this point, these are. Um, this is this is some good stuff here. Let's um, let's. There's, there's actually a debate breaks out here between uh, Ophelia and Saint Clair about the nation, about things like that. So, like for instance, Saint Clair responds to some of Miss Ophelia's criticisms. And he gives kind of the paternalistic defense of slavery, saying, um, he who stands high and haughty on that good old respectable ground, the right of the strongest, and he says that I think quite sensibly that the American planter is only doing in another form what the English aristocracy and capitalists are doing to the lower classes. That is, I take it appropriating them, body and bone, soul and spirit, to their use and convenience. He defends both, and I think at least consistently. He says there can be no high civilization without enslavement of the masses either nominal or real. There must be, he says, be a lower class given up to physical toil and confines to an animal nature and a higher one thereby acquires the leisure and wealth uh, for the more it's expanded intelligence and improvements and become a directing soul to the lower. So he reasons because, as he said, he was a born aristocrat. And I don't believe because I, I don't believe because I was born a Democrat. Um, so he, I mean, this is, this is kind of total hypocrisy, though, um, because he's calling himself a Democrat. He's still a slaveholder at the end of the day, right? And he, he's trying to distance himself from this idea of a natural aristocracy. But he does believe in a natural aristocracy of, of whites, ultimately, right? Um, and then Ophelia says, well, comparing how we treat blacks to how English people treat lower classes is not the same because the English laborer cannot be, quote, sold, traded, parted from his family, and whipped. Um, and this is the debate that's being had in the nation, right? If you read pro-slavery voices, pro-slavery texts and thinkers, they make this case like, oh, better to be a slave than to be an English um, stock worker, right, or a servant in England. They have an actually worse life, or even northern workers, working class people, have a worse life. Immigrants have it worse than slaves. And Ophelia is not going to have any of that. Um, anyways, I, I urge you to read this chapter. It's chapter 19 in the, is it? Yeah, chapter 19. It's a, it's like a standoff the same way like George had a standoff. It's like we have two um, standoffs. The difference is George ultimately has more commitment to his conclusions than Ophelia does. 
And so this brings us to, um, to Topsy. So Topsy, um, I, I don't know, I got, I, got a, I got a sense like the minute after this debate, this discussion with Ophelia, St. Clair goes and buys this slave and it's like, I'll show her. Like, she has all these like liberal values about slaves. Well, we'll I'll give her Topsy and then that Topsy will break Ophelia. And then it's kind of like a mustache twirling kind of villain. I don't think that's really what happens here. I think Stowe just needed Topsy in the story in order to challenge and, and test Ophelia. Um, because Ophelia, if you stop there, Ophelia's right. But she's still in a household with slaves, right? So you can question that. But what if she's actually in charge of a slave? How is she going to behave? And so what happens is St. Clair buys Topsy. Topsy is a young girl. Well, you know, she's like eight or nine or ten or something, right? She's, she's young, but she's totally uneducated, totally disobedient, right? Not the kind of slave most slaveholders would want to have around. Uh, still young, but totally cynical, uncommitted. Um, when I first read this, I think, like, Topsy's actually pretty based because she realizes there's no future for her. She's not going to get anything out of the system. She's not Christianized. So for Stowe, that's a red flag of sorts because Tom is a Christian, and that's central to his characterization, and Stowe wants to promote Christianity, obviously. Topsy not having those values, not being educated even in slaveholders' Christianity is a problem in how Stowe characterizes her. Stowe wants her kind of to be a bad, almost like a villainous character here. But she's also saying Topsy is who she is because of slavery. So the real villain, I guess, is slavery, but Topsy's not good. I want to say, yeah, Topsy's pretty awesome. She realizes the reality, and she gives the middle finger to all the whites around her, knowing, like, the worst they can do is kill me, and they're probably not because these St. Clairs are, are comparative pushovers to other masters she's had. So she's just going to be in a constant state of resistance to it. And I'm like, good for you, Topsy. <laughs> um, but that's not really Stowe's intention. That To do that is to give to Topsy kind of what I want Topsy to be and not what Stowe has Topsy been, who is someone who at a young age, at a young tender age, is already broken heart and soul by slavery. Um, but the challenge she poses to Ophelia is interesting and, and worth talking about because Topsy just does not want to do anything. Remember Dinah? Uh, Ophelia is trying to control the household, teach Dinah how to be a manager, how to be efficient. Topsy doesn't want anything to do with that. She just refuses to work and she talks back. Uh, she's ignorant and she uses that to avoid work or to avoid following orders. And Ophelia ultimately says at one point to Augustine, like, what can I do with a girl like this except beat her? So she resorts to authoritarian means. Now, you know, not immediately pulling out the whip or anything, but she realizes that the only way to manage Topsy is through violence, is through force. Um, and and that that's the test. That's Ophelia's test. And she fails. She fails the test because the proper thing to do is to, I guess, give Topsy love, treat her like an equal member of the family, educate her, um, 
and liberate her and then see where she ends up, right? And it's not going to be Ophelia who does it. Who is going to show Topsy love? Obviously, it's Ava. Ava, who's already done that with Tom, um, is going to do that with Topsy. And I think it's actually more important with Topsy because Tom is already old. He's already got his opinions. He's already good, essentially. So, yes, we get the sympathy from Ava and the friendship between Ava and Tom. But we don't have, like, this redemption arc here. Uh, So Ava actually kind of suggests her love. She says, poor Topsy, why do you need to steal? You're going to be taken good care of now. I'm sure I'd rather give you anything of mine than have you steal it. It was the first word of kindness the child had ever heard in her life. And the sweet tone and manner struck strangely on the wild, rude heart and sparkled something like a tear shorn, shone in the keen, round, glittering eye. But it was followed by a short laugh and habitual grin. No, the ear that has never heard anything but abuse is strangely incredulous of anything so heavenly as kindness. And Topsy only thought Ava's speech something funny and inexplicable. She did not believe it. But what was to be done with Topsy? Miss Ophelia found the case a puzzler. Her rules for bringing it up didn't seem to apply. She thought she would take time to think of it and by a way of gaining time in the hopes of some indefinite moral virtue supposed to be inherent in the darker closets, Miss Ophelia shut Topsy up in one until she arranged her ideas further on the subject. End quote. So that's the contrast. Ophelia, who says anti-slavery things, opens her mouth and out come anti-slavery words, can't be anti-slavery because she basically only knows the authoritarian way of running a household. Um, is this a backhanded criticism of Catherine Beecher's approach? I don't quite think so. I think it's it's a very different if you're managing slaves like a factory and managing your own household like a factory to have more efficiency, more leisure, more control. It's, it's essentially very different. Um, but Topsy is a problem for her. The solution is not waiting and hoping she'll be reformed. The, the solution Ava gives is, is love. Um, actually pretty easy to understand um, and quite rather uh, meaningful, I think. So next, that's, I think, the heart of this section. That's really what I want to talk with you about today. But we do have, I think, one or one, two more chapters, mostly about the relationship between Tom and his old masters, uh, the Shelbys in Kentucky. Um, so um, Tom writes a letter um, to Aunt Chloe. Um, obviously, his old family, right? And Mr. Shelby is still having money problems, uh, which I think has to be, it would have been morally unconscionable, I think, for Stowe to have any good in selling off Tom. That's, you know, it can't, it can't solve his own fundamental problems, you know, which is he's, he's living beyond his means and slavery is not going to solve that problem of, of providing comfort to him uh, or security. Um, but meanwhile, Mrs. Shelby wants to actually buy Tom. Um, I don't think Mr. Shelby is really too keen on that. It turns out later that George, Master George, I should call him Master George just to be clear, wants to buy Tom too. And, and that's uh, chapter 12 is we got a time jump of a couple years. And George, we, we need that for George to be a little bit older. I guess, uh, to begin choosing, beginning, beginning to do his like academic work, 
moving into adulthood, but also deciding that he wants to um, purchase Tom. Uh, we got a little scene here with um, Tom and Ava, um, kind of on a summer vacation at, at, like, like at, the, at the lake. Um, but, and, and we got a little, we got, we got a pretty clear foreshadowing here that Ava's going to get sick because Ophelia basically intervenes uh, at her being outside and says, oh, you got a horrible cough. That's not good. It's not going away. Sounds like trouble, right? So, you know, it's, it's not hard to see that Ava is going to, something's going to happen to Ava, and that's going to be a, a test or something for Tom or Topsy. We'll, we'll, we'll see where all that goes. But um, really, I think this is a fascinating section, and I think especially with the character of Ophelia and even more so Topsy. I think I didn't expect Topsy in this book. I didn't expect, I thought it would mostly be about Tom and Ava. I didn't expect Topsy in the story. I didn't expect Prue either. Uh, although I knew there'd be like anti-slavery moments. And, and when I first read it, I thought, okay, this is the, uh, like where Stowe reminds us how horrible slavery is because the St. Clairs aren't, you know, the, as bad as many other slaveholders. And she doesn't want the readers to forget that. But Topsy entering the household and undermining Ophelia's values, challenging them, and showing the limits of Ophelia's potential to be uh, actual loving to a, to a black person is, is really important, I think, in the story. And complicates her character and complicates how we look at like your average, like, quote-unquote, liberal white Southerner who is of a class where they're with slaves in, in, the, you know, in, a, in, in a slave society but maybe has reservations about it. But why can't those reservations translate into action? Well, it's, it's because ultimately they can't see blacks as equals. They can't really love black people, and they can't you know, imagine a world in which they're not in charge to some degree. Um, so anyways, uh, good stuff. Uh, um, really, really uh, important section of the book, I think. So in the next episode, we'll look at chapters... 23 to 32, so that's uh, 10 chapters, so a um, bunch of short chapters it looks like. I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but I will start as soon as I sign off, so I'm looking forward to seeing where the story goes. So um, anyways, thanks for listening. Let me know your thoughts on especially Topsy or, or Ophelia or how we can interpret those characters. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but... Um, yeah, that's where to reach me. Uh, you can leave comments on this podcast, too, or reviews on, on Apple um, Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. So anyways, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>